we're starting our new series, Seriously? Question mark. Uh, the hard sayings of Jesus. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the more difficult things uh, that Jesus said and finding out more about our faith and more about him uh, as we go through that. Uh, there are few people who believed as passionately and spoke so fervently about the power of love to transform lives. And you can have a look and see if you can find one. The Martin Luther King. Here's a quote um, that he read out. And I'm going to read, you can see the second part of the quote. I'm going to read a bit more of the quote in full. Hate multiplies hate and a descending spike. This was actually a sermon that he wrote on the passage that we're looking at. He really lived it out, I think, did Martin Luther King. He really understood what it meant to try and love your enemies. Hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence, but love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. Love your enemies. Love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. But you see, Martin Luther had a problem. Race hate. And one guy in particular that chased after him and shot him. Killed him. Love your enemies. Maybe another guy that could give him a run for his money in terms of understanding uh, the depths of love and the power of love um, to change around your enemy was a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He lived just before uh, World War II. Uh, he, was a, he declared himself a pacifist. <clears throat> um, he was a pastor, a theologian, um, and a peacekeeper, a man of peace. Here's what he said. Christian love draws no distinction between one enemy and another, except the more, get your head around this, the more bitter our enemy's hatred don't know what you do when you encounter somebody who hates you with bitterness. Uh, the more bitter our enemy's hatred, the greater their need of love. But you see, Mr. Bonhoeffer had a problem. He had a huge problem. The Nazis came along. And he remained tied to this idea of peace. But he was part of, there's a film you can watch about it, he became part of the plot to kill Hitler. He had a big problem, and he was hung, tragically short of the end of World War II. Jesus says to us, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Here's our problem with that, I think, and there are a few problems with that. We know that it's a good way to go. We see in Bonhoeffer and Luther, ideals that are perfect. We see hearts that are perfect, and we see ways of moving that are perfect. We see what they were hoping to achieve, and we almost see, yeah, that's got to be the only way that you can do that. But at the same time, as we hold that in one hand, we see how it might even be the only way to change the world. At the same time, we know, hopefully in a metaphorical sense, that we get murdered if we love our enemies if we actually try 
and do that. What was, what was Jesus saying when he said, love your enemies? What was he actually thinking that we would be able to do? What was, what was he thinking would happen to the people who saw the miracles, as Jeff said, and started to follow him? Did he think that we were going to be able to love our enemies? When Jesus speaks on the Sermon of the Mount, which is part of the text that we're looking at, it's a kind of matrix-like, matrix-like revolution on humanity. When people start hearing Jesus talk about the kingdom of heaven, it flips the world upside down for everybody listening. You should read through those couple of chapters in Matthew. And when he talks about love, as he does for a little bit, in fact, anywhere in the Bible where he talks about love, he brings a whole new level of meaning to the word love. It's like, I don't know, when you encounter somebody who's actually fallen in love. Do you know, when it, maybe it's yourself. Maybe you've, maybe you've had the pleasure of falling in love yourself. Or maybe you come across somebody who's fallen in love. And they start talking about love. You think love is this thing. And then all of a sudden, they start talking about what it means, the depths of feeling that you can have. The different way that you see the world. When Jesus talks about love in the Sermon of the Mount, he, you can't help but hang your... Hang your thoughts on every word. Listen to what he says here. Love your enemies. To you who are listening, to you who have stuck around to hear what I've got to say, love your enemies. Verse 27. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who... What is he saying? Bless those who curse you. What is he hoping that we will do? Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold it from them. This is what I think about this text. He says it on the one hand because it's true. There is a truth to this. Jesus lives this stuff out. And it does change the world. It's true. It's what we're called to. It's true. But I don't think he says it because our big fear here is that we just, Christian love, hedge you towards getting beaten up. It heads you towards being abused. It heads you towards somebody putting on you all the time. I don't think he prepares us for a beating. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's saying it because it's true. But do you see the mischief? Do you see the poetic license in the way that he describes it? I think he wants us, he says to us, you're going to have to listen to this. You're going to have to think about this. If you actually try and do that, if you actually try and love like that, if you just follow the, the trail of thought through, you'll be sat with, if you, if you give everything away and expect nothing back, if you give your coat away, you'll have literally nothing. Jesus has been poetically mischievous at the same time as he's telling, of the, telling us the truth because he wants us to think about love more. He constructs his thoughts and his thinking in such a way as to have us blown away by the extent of love and drawn to thinking about it more deeply. He says to us, I think, I want you to think about this at a deep, deeper level. So there's two sayings I want to pick up on, and you'll be familiar with them. The first one is turn the other cheek. What did Jesus mean when he said turn the other cheek? Whenever I've thought about this, I've thought about the idea that you're just leaving yourself open to be hit, that it's abuse um, for the Christian. It's a really helpful translation, this, because it's not strike the other cheek. It's slap the other cheek. A slap, I don't know, have you ever had a slap? 
across the face. You don't have to put your hands up. <laughs> I've had one. I dumped a girl at Easter time. At the same point as I gave her an Easter egg. And her sister took offense to this. I misjudged the moment, granted. Uh, but her sister came over and struck me with the inside of her hand across my head. But it wasn't an attack. She wasn't going to beat me up. What was it? She could have beat me up, to be fair, at that point in my life. It was an insult. She was insulting me. Which part of me was hurt? My cheek was a bit hurt, but what was really hurt, and what Jesus, I think he's getting at here, is my ego was bruised. That's what Jesus is getting at. My ego was bruised. In the, in the Israeli world at this time, God's people lived in a culture that was bursting with pride and egos. Religion was about how you could present yourself, how good you, it was a competition almost, faith. Your good works were points scored. The law was something that you could argue to win. Everybody's egos was bursting at this time. I would say it compares with society today. Our big problem is not that we're gonna fight each other, that's not our big problem as to why we won't love each other. Our big problem, one of our big problems, is our egos. It's so competitive out there. We have to promote ourselves at every opportunity. We live in an egotistical world. And you'll know this if you've been married. This is something that I found out as I've been married, and it's my error. You can't love people if you're competing with them all the time. You can't. If you're trying to show that you're holier than them or better than them, eventually you'll have to drop the ego to show the love. Jesus says to us here, to turn the cheek is not to get a bashing and leave yourself open to get a bashing. He's saying, turn the other cheek, be willing to start a game with people. Be willing to drop things. He looks at the culture of people who can't drop things, who are constantly out to prove themselves, who are bursting with ego, and he says, you lot all need a new spirit in you. This place needs a new spirit. If you're going to love one another, if you're going to be able to love one another, culture's going to have to change. Or he's saying, I observe in you a culture where love, loving each other and loving enemies is really difficult. He gets us to think about that. Loving enemies, that's the other thing that he asks us to do. Jesus is challenging the way uh, that God's people up to that point had practiced a command, a famous command. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. It was this gorgeous, beautiful, inclusive command to care for the community. And God's people had put an addendum on it. I think it's an addendum. I think that's the right word. They'd put, love your neighbor as yourself, but hate your enemy. Jesus would have paused as he said this. Love your, everyone's waiting for neighbors, and he says, love your enemies. And he's challenging that thought that had developed amongst his people, that you are to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Something good, like loving your neighbor, had been changed into something a bit more xenophobic and a bit more tribal and a bit more selfish. Just love those that are like you. And he's speaking into a culture that had gotten scared of everybody else and started to judge everybody else. And he speaks into it and he says, this love won't prosper here. He observes a culture where it's going to be difficult for love to flourish. We live 
in heads, with ways of thinking, and in a space that is hardened to the opportunities that great love brings. We need a new spirit. Jesus causes us to think more deeply about love. He causes us to think about where we are and what we're up against. And maybe you're saying at this moment, that's really nice, Ash. That's, that's nice that you've given me something to think about and work on. Doesn't really help me with the Nazis and the racists, though. It might help me love my nan a bit. It might give me something to work on. But when somebody's coming into me in the workplace, or somebody's hated me forever, or there's somebody in my family that I've just got a huge problem with, they're like an enemy, I don't know that it's going to help me with that. And that is the kind of love that we need. So Jesus gets us to think, but he doesn't just leave us thinking. He starts us off, I think, in this passage by getting us thinking, causing us to think, but he gives us somewhere to go with love. He gives us a way through in this world that's tricky. He gives us a way to think about how we can love more than just uh, ourselves. As I've said already, our concern with love is that it leaves us in this space where we're going to get walked over where we're going to become the victims of abuse. I think that's how you could take Christian love. And if you study it, if you study the history of the church, a lot of great thinkers have thought similarly that this is the way that we just leave ourselves open to every kind of beating that is coming. And as I've said already, Jesus has been honest, he's telling the truth, but I don't know that he's taking us down that path. When we see love like that, when we see love um, being manifest in somebody that just turns the other cheek, not just to start again, but to get beaten up. We say over and over again, or we've maybe even experienced it, we say, that's not love, that. Love doesn't have that level of imbalance. I'm thinking about the world around us when I think about this command at the moment. An invading force can't just move into another area, and we can see this all over the world, and say, should we just be friends? Can't we just get along? There can't be with love and relationship that imbalance. The injustice would have to be dealt with. You can't have a long-running family feud with somebody who's really wronged you and just forget about all of that. In the love process, as part of the love process, you have to hold together the injustice and work away at the injustice. So loving each other is really hard, actually. And what it means, if you think about it far enough or long enough, maybe you've experienced this, I definitely have in terms of how I'm able to love, it means we stop loving in such big circles. Don't know if you've ever thought about how many people you actually love. It's quite a small number. We rein our circles in. Sometimes we might even stop loving altogether. But that is not how God sees love. God just doesn't leave us there. With God, love and justice are like a balance. Love and justice come as a pair. You can see it in this text if you look hard enough. Jesus comes and he's got this beautiful passage that we've read a few times and he's saying over and over again, love your enemies. It's this gentle loving approach. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. See how gentle and loving it is? He comes on the one hand with this like soft love. But you've, we've not even looked at the couple of verses before. 
that marry up with it, that come together with the man Jesus. He walks in to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and at the same time, he's telling everybody, love softly, love. He doesn't forget justice. He's not just been nasty to the Pharisees. He sees the Pharisees, and he says, this is unjust what's going on. Woe to you who are rich and who've robbed off of people. For you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, taking advantage of people. Justice and love come at the same time. And you can see this narrative right the way through the Bible. It's one of the main themes. They come together. One of the most beautiful verses, one of the verses that coins it um, most succinctly is in Micah. What does the Lord require of you? What does God ask of people who are going to walk in his ways? Listen to the two things. Maybe you know this verse. Maybe you're familiar with it. To act justly, do acts of justice, proactively care about justice, act justly, and at the same time as you hold that need for justice, love mercy. Love mercy at the same time. The Christian... The godly person is somebody, no matter how much it stretches them, is holding on to justice and holding on to love at the same time, even if they're pulling him or her apart. And if we drop either of them, if we're not able to love or we're not just, then we lose both. Jesus is showing us a way through. It's nuanced. It's balanced. It's complicated. It's going to demand effort. But you'll have seen it. Uh, my grandma Marshall is the best person in the whole world. She's deceased. She's gone. Bless her. She's the best person in the whole world. The most loving person I've ever seen. She was a very simple woman. Not uh, an academic. She's just a simple woman. She loved people all of her life. It's almost what she did. She was one of these... Uh, ladies who just ended up caring for different people. Ever, since I was a baby, I only remember ever seeing her love people and care for people. She cared for an auntie that came to live with her, and she cared for her dad, she cared for her mom, and then in the end, she cared for her husband who got Alzheimer's. Um, and I saw in that moment some of the greatest acts of love that my childhood uh, remembered. My granddad, bless him, went from being her partner, lover, friend, to being really difficult. But my gran loved him. And I remember one moment in particular where I saw the balance of love come together. And I saw a way. She grabbed him with the double-handed carer's grab. Have you seen that? It's like soft but firm. I'm going to stop you. And she whispered to him, justice. Jeff, you can't talk to me or treat me like that. She tilted her head with love, but she said it gently. You can't talk to me like that. I'm your wife. It was love, soft love, but it was just at the same time. It was the balance. We see it, I think, most succinctly at the cross. You see the cross. Jesus doesn't let us away with, doesn't let... Um, Error away, doesn't let sin away. He said there needs to be justice, but there's got to be love. And the two come together. And we look at all of that, I think, and we say, 
Maybe your grand was just a really great person. Maybe we're not all meant to be like that. Maybe there's, there's a circumstance where that can work, but there's circumstances where there's just too much evil and we can't do that. I think Jesus says to us, yeah, that's true. He looks at us and he knows what we're like. But in the cross, he says, it's this way. Jesus is the way. That's what it is. He says it's, it's this way. We might not be able to do it. We might not be able to get there, but it's this way. This is how to love. Hold them both. How do we do it? How do we even think about doing it? I think the clue, and this is the end of the sermon, is in the last couple of verses. Verses 35, 36. Love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. This is the key, I think. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Because He is kind, we can be kind. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. The great verse in the Bible that says, while we were yet sinners, while we were the enemies, which is the harsh words of the Bible, God, Christ, died for us. He saw us at our worst, and he still loved us. That's the gospel. That's what changes us. I don't know if you've seen Lemis. I can't handle musicals anymore. I can't watch all that singing. I have to switch them off. I can't go to the theater and watch them. But this Lemmys, you don't have to watch it all for this anecdote. You just have to watch the first couple of minutes to get the strength of this anecdote. I'm giving you that. You can switch it off. Jean Valjean is on the run. I think it's Jean Valjean. The authorities are after him. Goes into a church. And he's trying to save himself. He's trying to save his skin. So he's, 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 he's been what seems like a good man up, up to, almost up to this point, And now he's nicking stuff from the church. And the priest is watching him. The priest is seeing him at his worst. He chases after him, and at the point where you're watching it, at least in the film, I've not been to the theatre, you think he's going to get captured, you think he's going to get done for, you think he's going to get thrown in jail. Priest doesn't do that to him, shoves some more gold in his pocket, and shoves him on his way. And as far as the story goes and the film goes, it transforms his whole life. The rest of his free life is fueled by this act of love and grace. It turns him around. That is, in effect, the gospel. If you believe it, that's the story. That's what it is. God looks at us, and he's seen the deepest, darkest corners of our lives. We, he's seen us as enemies. He knows everything that we've done, all the rubbish thoughts that we've had, like the horrendous things that can exist in the back of our minds, even while we're smiling at people. God has seen it all while we were yet sinners. In the moment that he sees it all, he loved us to death. And that is what sets us free. That is what fuels us. At the start of our new series, Jesus gives us something to think about. And I think as well, if we believe it, he gives us a way, a way through.